Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host. Glad to be joined by my awesome co-host, the author of the groundbreaking what what is that how do you how do you do it like what wooding? Is that is that the verb? Whoop, 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 whoop. Bridge building book, crossing the divide. Jessica the reporter stone. Jess, nice to see you. How you doing? Uh, nice intro. Needs a little little refining, but I appreciate it. Gotta sand and, that uh, thing down. Love the, lo- love the promo. Appreciate that, man. Good to <laughs> be bet. back with you today and good to um, be able to dive into some real analytics with our guest. Yeah, yeah. I've been excited to do this for a while. Uh, today's guest, Dennis Quinn, is a computational social scientist at Pew Research Center and was the primary researcher on a recent study the center conducted called Pastors Often Discussed Election pandemic and racism in fall of 2020, which we'll be discussing at length today. But the part I really got to know about before Dennis was ever a computational social scientist and doing AI and training computers to take over the world, he was saving the world as a firefighter and EMT. <laughs> so Dennis, oh, wow, you did. Yeah, you dug back there. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how, how does one go from fighting fires and saving grandma from burning buildings to studying at Georgetown University and becoming a renowned social scientist? <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I'm going to object to renown, but <laughs> so a couple notes, the, the firefighter shtick, you know, I, I saved many more small animals okay. than, than humans. So more, more like kitty from tree than, than grandma from burning building. Okay. So cats tend not to really get stuck in trees, right? Like they are usually there deliberately. So it's best uh, often to leave them alone. It was actually mostly uh, a lot of uh, animals in sewers. Okay. Oh, oh, this is really glamorous now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I had the distinction of saving a family of, of ducks from a sewer once. That was a highlight. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for your service, Dennis. We need <laughs> you on that wall. We need you in that sewer, man. Yeah. Now I'm curious if there's some crossover where you did some like computational analysis of like how many kitties and trees versus ducks and sewers versus grandmas and burning buildings. <laughs> and how, well, many, how many samples? <laughs> well, the, the crossover, the overlap between being a data scientist and uh, being in the emergency services is that it is mostly dirty work. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, machine learning in and data the science. trenches, one might say. Eighty percent. Your words, not mine. Eighty percent, like data cleaning. He data totally monitoring. blew through my bad joke. Totally. 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 Uh, that's a shout out to Glego. I hate. Uh, so one of my best friends, his name's Mark Glego, and those jokes, Jessica, are called Glego jokes. So you're officially initiated into really bad Glego jokes. But uh, awesome. you'll get better. I gotta get meet there. this guy. I'm sure we'd have you rolling in short time, short order. Yeah. So okay. So you went to Georgetown to study poli sci and government, but also Arabic and Islamic studies. What right. drew you to that particular field of study? You know, it was it was not actually. Uh, 
I mean, like most decisions you make when you're 18, I, I don't know that I can retroactively apply any particular logic to it. I think I was drawn mostly to the language. Uh, I wanted to study um, a non-romance language and something with a different script. And then you come down to it and the sort of, you know, the overlap of what's what's taught at Georgetown, where do I want to live, uh, narrows things down for you pretty quickly. So it was mostly actually just interest in the language and it yeah. kind of went from there. Interesting. And then I'm trying to draw the line between that and how you got into data collection, data science, and, you know, building out these complex computer computer programs. Um, how, how did you like take, take me from Georgetown to basically what you're doing now? Well, you're asking me to, to maybe draw straight lines that don't exist, but <laughs> you know, the bridge to the extent that there was a, a rational bridge is mostly humanitarian stuff. So in the humanitarian world, there's a huge need for big data. Um, so that was kind of the overlap as I got into computational sciences via sort of humanitarian data and then showed up to the Pew Research Center actually working on a completely different project. And the overlap of what was needed at the time just pointed to this project. So it yeah. kind of went from there. I noticed that the study that we're gonna talk about today was building upon one that was done in 2019, but right. you've been doing this um, vocationally for seven, eight years, I, I think. Uh, but how much have you seen the science itself evolve just in the time you've been focusing on it? Oh, uh, leaps and bounds. And, and, you know, so in data science and machine learning, and particularly what is now being referred to as computational social science, you know, the leaps and bounds are happening in a lot of areas at once, right? So off on the far end of, of the spectrum, right, you have these sort of terrifying geniuses who are devising these machine learning models that can operate at just insane scale and, you know, identify trends of the sorts that, you know, many of us had never imagined. Yeah. That's one end of the spectrum. And that's not what we do really here at the Pew Research Center, right? The rest of us are focused on applications. So we're not building, right, the craziest, fanciest new machine learning model, right? Those are the PhDs in Silicon Valley, mostly, not to generalize, who are doing that. What we're doing is, is applying those things to social science problems, right? So there are a series of longstanding you know, norms and practices in social science research, which when layered with the new capabilities in data collection, identification, cleaning and classification that machine learning offers can allow you to do really powerful things, right? Like the sort of data mining we're talking about here. I, and no one here invented anything we used, right? We yeah. put it, we put it together. Okay. Not unlike investigative journalists um, are doing as well. I'd imagine a lot of the same spreadsheet and data management and cleaning and co computing, which I've taken classes in and wish I <laughs> had maintained my skill set in because it's very valuable. Yeah. Um, but I, I just want to get to the point where I don't have to know the code. I can just speak into the computer and say sort according to X and that will just happen. Poof. Oh, I think that's coming. Yeah. 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 Because then you then you don't have to then I don't have to be quite as adept as you are to get to my <laughs> questions answered. <laughs> I don't want to put you out of a job, of course, but uh, I do think it would be nice if we could get there because there's so much dirty data, right? Like a lot of the methodology that we read in this report is just getting the data clean enough to be able to analyze it and draw conclusions. Correct. Absolutely. 
and that's that's true in I mean across the field of computational social science is the the differentiating factor is can you find and clean the data? Hmm. Interesting. So uh, before we get into the report, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about polling. The the report we're discussing today is not a poll per se, but Pew does conduct polls. Like one that I saw you were involved with in January of 2020 called U.S. Churchgoers Are Satisfied with the Sermons They Hear. Polling has been under a lot of scrutiny, especially over the last five years or so. So can you just tell us how good quality polling can be done? I cannot provide a lifetime of research that requires <laughs> that's required for the answer to that question. I can give you this. So I'm not one of the polling people here, right? I, I work at the Pew Research Center and that requires some fluency in polling. But you know, I can I can get you on the phone with our director of survey research later this week and, and she can really get you through that stuff. The the version of that that I can give you, right, okay. is that high quality polling on issues when done well, generally speaking, can still be trusted. Now, when you look at election polls, what you're looking at, right, is something that is asking people not about just an attitude, but about a behavior, voting. And then it's asking them about that behavior in the future, right? So polls are good at attitudes, but behaviors are more challenging and the future is even more challenging. Okay. So whatever happens to election polling, generally speaking, that is at least to a certain degree divorced from attitude polling. That's kind of the version I'm capable of giving you right now because that's just not what I have my education in. But uh, generally speaking, when, when a poll is conducted properly here today now, uh, using the latest methodologies as, as they're intended in the best practices, that's generally something that you can still trust. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a little bit more of a specific question and see if you can zero in on it. And if not, uh, maybe I'll, I'll plug to get a, a, another representative from Pew on because I am a yeah. big fan of really good polls and there are some really good polls out there. But what are some of the ways polling firms have had to adapt to changing conditions in our culture? Landlines versus cell phones. Uh, many people just don't pick up the phone or uh, effects that we heard about ad infinitum, the supposed shy Trump voter. How do good polling firms adapt to those types of things? You know, the honest answer is that the, the, the question requires sort of a dissertation. Um, okay. it's, it's ifs, ands, and buts, and whens. You know, polling by and large is in a lot of cases evolving certainly away from landlines and perhaps away from cell phones. And you're seeing certainly a lot of online polls uh, and a lot of mailers. And you know the things that are driving us towards that are certainly related to response rates. But to be honest with you, my ability to recite the existing best practice right here, right now is fairly limited. Okay, okay. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the, the overarching arc of a lot of your research seems to me has been social media and the online world and its sort of intersection with both politics and religion. And I'm wondering if based on the body of work that you've done so far, if you have observations about the impact the online world has had on those two parts of our culture. Man, you guys keep asking for books. I mean, 
I, I would say what hasn't it changed? Give me the cliff right? notes. <laughs> what hasn't it changed, right? I mean, the to the extent that you're talking about social media, you're talking about a world of communication that exists uh, primarily within algorithms that determine what is seen and what's not seen. And that gives users incentives about what to say and what not to say. So I, I would say that the online world has, right, to a certain degree, obviously, it has given us uh, entirely new paradigms of communication. And I think that that probably, I think that's uncontroversial to say that that permeates all, you know, all ends of our public life, certainly. Okay. Well, let's get to that uh, a main study, the main reason we've got you uh, on the podcast this week. This is the Pew study on 2020 sermons. Can you kind of set the stage for how you got to the point where you decided to study this? Or was it just a recreation of the, the study that you did back in 2019? And, and remind me, what is the official? Yeah, it's uh, pastors often discussed election, pandemic, and racism in fall of 2020. And that was released just earlier this month, uh, July 8th, 2021. That's right. Yeah, so is this a repeat of 2019 or are you going to study this annually? What, what got you to look into this particular question? Well, you know, to be honest, right, I don't, I don't have our, our plans going forward, you know, in my pocket to pull out. But when the opportunity arose to understand what Americans were hearing from the pulpit about the 2020 election, I mean, that was just kind of a dumb moment, right? Of course, we're going to do that. So the short version of this is that Americans, of course, don't need a computational study to tell them that they were deluged with information about politics and you know, all sorts of other things in 2020. What we hoped to add is at least some understanding of what they were hearing in the pews, right? This hour, two hours a week, when you would at least believe for theoretical reasons that a lot of attitude and opinion formation is happening, right? So we used a similar methodology to what we did in 2019. We used a series of computational tools, essentially computer programs that we built, which navigated the websites of thousands of churches across the country using statistical models to identify the sermons they shared online. We downloaded the sermons, transcribed them from audio to text as needed, and then we used a, a broad suite of tools referred to as natural language processing to identify key themes in those sermons, right? And the things we looked at in this study, as you know, were the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, racism and structural racism in America, and the 2020 election. And within sermons that discussed the 2020 election, we looked specifically at how frequently parishioners were explicitly encouraged to vote or turn out to vote, and how frequently pastors went into some depth on specific issues, parties, or candidates, right? That being the two major parties, the two major party candidates, or anything you could think about coming up on a debate stage, right? Taxes, foreign policy, or things like that. I, I want to geek out for a second. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> Great. No, part of my question is, it's really a tradecraft question, uh, methodology. So in order to go through as many churches' websites, we're talking about hundreds of thousands. There were a number of ways your team utilized AI 
to do some heavy lifting. Can you describe specifically what types of functions AI can perform in a study like this and how you would um, train or program a tool to do that kind of work? Absolutely. So the study in question here was conducted on 20,000, roughly 20,000 churches, church websites. So machine learning or what you could call AI played a couple of different roles. So at one end, when we are looking for sermons, the program that we built that navigates church websites used a machine learning model to identify the pages that looked most likely to contain sermons. So the way that we did that was we took a sample of web pages from throughout our database of congregations, right? So we went to their websites and did our best to find sort of a random sample of the pages on their websites. We collected the text of the URLs and the text sort of surrounding the URLs, right? You can imagine like a hyperlink, right? You have the text in the link and the link itself. And then we, the researchers, manually classified those links for whether they truly contained sermons, services, or homilies, or whether they didn't. And then we were able to feed that data, the links and the text around them, and whether they truly did or did not contain sermons into a statistical model. And I'm using the words statistics, AI, and machine learning kind of interchangeably here, because uh, in our case, you know, they kind of are. And what that did was it took different permutations of the text, right? Whether different words or series of characters appeared and essentially attempted to correlate that in different ways with whether there were or were not sermons. And it then eventually learned how to make a pretty effective guess about whether there would be sermons on a page. And finally, one of the last things we did is in one of these models, you usually get out a probability prediction, not just a yes, no, right? But it'll say like, there's a 59% chance that this has sermons on it. And so what you can do is if you're not super concerned about scraping a page that doesn't have sermons on it, right? But you're pretty concerned about missing a page that does, you can tell it, make the probability at which you look at a web page like 20%, right? Okay. And you will filter out a huge number of web pages that do not contain anything you're interested in. You will bring in some number that contain nothing you're interested in, but you will make it quite rare that you'll miss something you are interested in. So that's one place that machine learning played a role in the study. And later on, you know, when we actually had this full database of contents, we also had to remove uh, non-sermons from the data, right? Okay. We had essentially collected this, you know, mass database, right, yeah. of what one of my colleagues once referred to as kind of internet detritus. You know, it was just <laughs> stock. And in it were sermons. But also announcements about the ice cream social. <laughs> I mean, you joke, but yes. yes yeah. <laughs> so we then used another statistical classifier to do the same task, right? We labeled them, a sample of them, and we asked the classifier to essentially use the words in the text and other features about those um, you know, sermons or announcements or whatever to develop a pretty good guess about what's a sermon and what's not. And okay. we were able to then weed out non-sermons. So that's, those are two examples. And of course, the final one is classifying the actual topics themselves. Yeah. 
Now, there there were some numbers that were pretty stark in the categories that you broke down to. The study was broken down into four main groups with uh, within Christianity, Catholic, Evangelical, Protestant, historically black Protestant and mainline Protestant. So I was curious, a couple things. How did you determine which groups to include and how did you identify specific uh, churches, like what would qualify a specific church as evangelical versus mainline or mainline versus historically black. Got it. So those four categories were included because they are the largest Christian categories in the country. Um, any other groups are just generally much smaller. So statistically are a lot harder to speak to. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but in our case, we didn't feel like we were able to in good faith. Uh, as far as what gets you categorized into which group. So it is a measure called religious tradition, which we sometimes call RELTRAD. And it was developed. Wait, you have an acronym for religious tradition. RELTRAD. <laughs> and if I talk to you in the future about RELTRAD, you'll know what I mean. I will. And maybe Corey and I just got a new, a new, you know, t-shirts. We're making t-shirts. RELTRAD. <laughs> I, I mean, like I like to put some Reltrad on the pod this week. I'm going to drop some Reltrad on you. <laughs> wow. We are geeking out today. This is awesome. Sorry. <laughs> oh, please. No, so basically it's. I just didn't know what he was signing up for. <laughs> I have a sense actually. But, you know, it, it's, it's essentially a measure uh, that is designed to speak to the historical genesis of the major groups. So it's an aggregation of uh, denominations, right? So different denominations, like, you know, examples being the Southern Baptist Convention, which would be evangelical Protestant, uh, would be categorized based on the sort of founding genesis of the faith group itself into sort of like groups. Um, if you're actually really truly interested, I can send you the original paper that built it. It's an academic paper from, I think, the 90s. I know. Corey is known to read a paper, a white paper or two. Yeah, or two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoy, I actually, I spent more time on the methodology. Uh, you know, you go past know, the report itself. Yeah, oh, the, the well, methodology was fascinating, so. Condolences. <laughs> <laughs> so this is more of a 30,000 foot view. Were there any findings that were particularly surprising? Sure. Sure. Well, striking. I would say one thing that struck me about the data is the extent to which Americans across Christian groups, by and large, tended to hear a fair bit about the election in 2020, right? And that's not terribly surprising. The only group uh, that, st that stood out for hearing less about the election was Catholic congregations, uh, about 41% of which heard a sermon mentioning the election compared to roughly seven in 10 congregations nationwide that heard at least one sermon mentioning the election, right? So by and large, American parishioners heard a fair bit about politics in the election in 2020. I would say that it's fairly striking looking into the sermons that they may not recognize much having heard about the same event uh, of what their counterparts across the country and across the aisle, so to speak, heard in those same sermons about that same topic right so okay when you look in, you gotta give us some, yeah give us some details on that that's interesting sure. so i mean when you when you look into what americans were really hearing during these sermons that discussed the election you see that this 
focus in historically black Protestant congregations on voter turnout, voter registration, and voter suppression was sort of a backbone through uh, the discourse around the election. 43% of all historically black Protestant sermons mentioning the election specifically encouraged voting or voter turnout. That's about double the rate of any other Christian group, right? So 20% of congregations nationally encouraged voting. That's, that's, less, than, that's less than half. By comparison, evangelical Protestant pastors were much more likely than, their, than other groups to go into some depth on specific issues or parties or candidates, right? This would mean talking to at least a certain length about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or talking about taxes or foreign policy, right? So there, the focus in these sermons about this same event was fairly different. And you can also see that looking in to the vocabulary that different Christian pastors used when discussing the election. For example, when historically black Protestant pastors talked about the election, the word that they were most disproportionately likely to use relative to other pastors talking about the election, right? The word that most stands out statistically is the word suppress or suppression. And the other words that stand out statistically, that is, include phrases like early vote or early voting, register to vote, mail, and register, all of which Black Protestant pastors were five times or more more likely to use than other pastors when talking about the election. By comparison, evangelical Protestant pastors, once again, talking about this same event that we all experienced, uh, tended to use words related to hell or punishment, right? Yeah. So evangelical pastors were three times as likely when talking about the election to use the word Satan, and about twice as likely to say some variant of pray for our president or for the president, right? Of course, referring at the time to Donald Trump. Now, right, when we say disproportionate, we are not casting any judgment on the relative use or not use of the word itself, right? We're talking about the statistics here. Right. But, you know, you can see in these numbers that people heard about the same event, but to a certain degree, you wouldn't know it. Right. Right. Yeah. I noticed some of that too. Pray came up again and again in evangelical churches in conjunction with other words or phrases like elect, but other words like Satan was three times as likely to be used in evangelical versus other churches or hell was twice as likely in evangelical versus other churches. But then historically black churches, words like to your point, suppress seven times as likely to be used than in other churches or early vote was uh, also seven times as likely register combined with vote was seven times more likely to be used. So it's not even casting. Uh, it's not a commentary. It's just th these are just hard numbers. Uh, but can we draw further conclusions from those sorts of insights or is the quantitative data itself the insight? Well, I mean, the numbers guy thinks that the numbers are the insight, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I but think you do that, have the term social scientist in your title, sir. That's I, I, I have to carry that one with me, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the numbers do speak for themselves, right? And you can look at this, uh, this list of, of words and phrases, right? And it's not particularly hard to draw a narrative, certainly. It's, and, and it's not controversial to draw from these numbers that the focus in historically black Protestant churches before the election was voter turnout, voter registration, 
and countering voter suppression efforts, right? That was a backbone in the Black Protestant Church, right? That ran through the fall of 2020. I'm going to give you an acronym in political science circles and political consultancy circles, GOTV, get out the vote. That's what Mm. they were focused on. Yes, absolutely. Although I think the discussion on voter suppression was probably higher too because of what was happening racially. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was another, that was a whole other comparison. You can Uh, use that in your podcast, Dennis. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Um, No, uh, I was thinking of um, different different words that it was noteworthy, how different words around the subject of racism, historically black churches, words like black community or vote uh, in Mm -hmm. combination with right or white supremacist and poll were several times more likely to be used. Yeah, and the evangelical churches didn't talk about racism in the same, with the same words, right? No, no, not at all. And in fact, right, one thing that I think paints a particularly striking picture is that when talking about racism in America, Black Protestant pastors still tended to talk about the election and turnout, right? So there's some entanglement there, Mm. obviously, in the topics. And as you allude, evangelical Protestant pastors talking about the election used quite different language and, and language that was more oblique, right? So rather than the word racism, you would see the words racial tension, right? And of course, there was, as you see in the data, a focus on law enforcement and police officers with words like crime or police officer. Yeah. I want to go back to that one observation at the top that you had that Catholic homilies had the least mention of the election. Correct. I just find that a little bit surprising given the fact that Joe Biden is so very openly Catholic. So there was really no translation of that in Catholic circles to talking about him specifically as a candidate or his faith as a reason to vote for him. Well, I don't have the counterfactual available for you, right, about what this would look like if Joe Biden was Protestant. But generally speaking, yes, Catholic uh, Catholic priests were by far the least likely to discuss the election in 2020. We were talking about Joe Biden Catholicism. I mean, you know, it's, it's just I just find found that very striking as well, because, you know, when you learned about JFK's candidacy, that was his big you know, that was that was something he really had to campaign around. And I think it was also a rallying cry for Catholic voters to turn out for him. Um, and it doesn't sound like it translated um, in Joe Biden's candidacy, perhaps because he's been around so long and there were many other issues facing the country. I mean, racism and the pandemic were largely what you studied, not people's personal faith. But you 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 had some other observations about the whole Catholic question. Well, just that, that one statistic that does enliven that conversation to a certain degree is that when you actually ask Americans how much they think pastors should address topics such as racism or race relations in America or political topics, Catholic and Protestant Americans are not actually too far off in how frequently they say that pastors should talk about these things. Hmm. About 43% of American Protestants say that it's either essential or important that pastors address topics like race relations in America compared to uh, 47% of Catholics, right? So these are not numbers that are worlds apart. So that tells us to a certain degree that what we're looking at is, is not that Catholic and Protestant Americans are world apart, worlds apart on the issue, but we are seeing, of course, that Catholic priests are generally shying away to a certain degree from these topics. Okay. Is there any big uh, shifts from 2019 to 2020 with respect to how often 
elections were mentioned in uh, churches across the country? So we don't have that available. So we didn't look at how frequently politics were discussed in 2019. The closest comparable figure to any degree that we have is we did look in 2019 at how frequently pastors discussed abortion as an issue in sermons. Mm. And it is definitely true that the 2020 election was a much, much more common topic in 2020 than abortion was in 2019. Now, that might not be all that surprising because we were, of course, in the middle of an election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this that tells us, you know, to a certain degree, just that we were in the time we were in, which isn't necessarily the most insightful thing I could offer you. <laughs> It was what it was. It is what it is. It is yeah. what it is. Um, I was curious if you go into a study looking for uh, the distinctions that began to emerge, or do data points like that emerge over the course of the process that that you and the team then take note of? Another way to ask it is, do, do you start with specific hypotheses and then have the study confirm those hypotheses, or did you start with more of like a, a big picture view, and then the data that was emerging from the study allowed you to start to make hypotheses? Well, generally speaking, you want to hypothesize before you design your research, right? So you want your question to animate every decision that you make in the process of collecting and analyzing your data. Now, the Pew Research Center, by and large, does sometimes strike a middle ground where we are offering people a data description, right? Not always a hypothesis testing procedure. So what you see in this study is we didn't necessarily lay out a hypothesis, right? So a hypothesis might look like a causal assertion, right? I think that X causes Y. And then you would collect and analyze your data to do what social scientists would call falsification. And it's a funny word, but basically what it means is you say, what would the world look like if my hypothesis were wrong? And then you go out and you try to essentially prove yourself wrong. You try to find that evidence that you're wrong. And then if you fail, you have falsified your hypothesis, right? And to a certain degree supported it. And you don't actually see that in what we're doing here, right? What we wanted to know were the numbers. We thought Americans deserve to have the facts, right? About what their counterparts across the country are hearing from the pulpit. And we wanted to give people those numbers. There is not really a hypothesis testing element though to the research. Okay. And just while we're on, um, while we're on the subject, as a side note, for those who didn't take these sorts of classes in college, would you mind giving us a quick primer on quantitative versus qualitative analysis? Sure. So essentially, qualitative or quantitative is numbers, you know, you are looking less in depth at more things, or are you looking more in depth at fewer things? right? So I could sit down and have an extended conversation with six people, right? And I can let them drive that conversation. It's called a focus group, as you know. And that might tell me a lot about what to look for in, say, a poll, right? Those people might give me an idea about something that I want to learn from a representative sample of the public. Now, I can't have an extended conversation with a representative sample of the public. So that's when you go looking for perhaps a quantitative approach, right? knowing less per unit about more people. So that's essentially the way I like to paint the difference, right? Do you wanna know a little less about more individuals or a lot more about a lot fewer individuals? 
Interesting. I hadn't thought of it quite in that way. So you want to get 100,000 people uh, to answer a yes or no question versus, you know, a room full of people uh, discussing in depth, you know, uh, a particular topic and, and going into a, a more more nuance, if you will. Right. Not usually 100,000, more like a thousand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just to be crystal clear in that example that Corey get gave the first one would be quantitative. The second one would be qualitative. Yeah. yeah. A thousand people answering a checkbox would be quantitative. Yeah. And six people having a coffee and telling you what they think about politics. That's qualitative. So we are a qualitative podcast. Yeah. We're doing it. Yes. This would be, you are, you are conducting qualitative research on me yes okay <laughs> that's great we have now been boxed we have now been put in a box for terrific we are qualitative we are the picture of qualitative <laughs> speaking of quantitative though uh we both did read a lot of the methodology with great interest and i have a couple questions about that um any notable outliers in the methodology um were there, for example, churches who were difficult to, to categorize? Any others who, who identified themselves perhaps differently or at odds with the language they used from the pulpit? Oh, sure. So in categorizing congregations, you mean, you know, by religious tradition, as we discussed, yeah, there are definitely edge cases. Now, an edge case isn't an outlier. So an edge case is somebody okay. that we're not sure where to put them. So we use the best information we have available, maybe even look them up. Uh, and we have one of our religion experts essentially make their judgment call. Now, an outlier, uh, that would be an example. Uh, an example of an outlier would be one congregation that discussed politics all day, every day for two months, you know, so you're- Did that happen? You're, oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, yes, the answer is actually yes, to a certain degree. Now, in these data, we were, uh, we, we took a few measures, right, as you generally do, to make sure that your findings are not driven by outliers, right? So that would mean, like, you know, if you have, say, 10 congregations in a simplified world, and nine of them discussed politics in 10% of their sermons, and one of them discussed politics in 100% of their sermons. The average, right, you'd, you would make it look like, I'm not gonna try to do the math, but you'd make it look like 20, 30, 40% of all congregations were talking about politics in their sermons, when in fact, it's just one pastor talks about it a ton and everyone else talked about it about, you know, 10% of the time. So that would be an example of an outlier. In, in yeah, in our data, certainly there are always outliers is the answer to the question, but you know, are they driving your findings is the real question. And the answer is no, right? What we're finding here is not driven primarily by highly unusual cases. And that's the thing you really want to look out for, certainly. So without getting too in the weeds here, but but also driving down on this edge characterization, uh, were there a lot of edge cases? And I, because I, I would draw a conclusion, maybe you wouldn't, uh, about sort of how churches see themselves if you were to say, yeah, there were a lot more edge cases than the year before, or just that there were a lot, period, that might tell us something about how churches are marketing themselves, even. I wouldn't say that that's something that, st that stood out to me. Okay. You know, it, I'll say this. It's the internet. The internet is primarily composed of edge cases, and I'm being flippant here, right? But it's a big, weird place. And, and so, yeah, right, totally. 
uh, I, I could tell you stories, right, about individual sermons that I did listen to in the data. I'm scared to because, you know, we do still have to be respectful that some of this could be personally identifiable, uh-huh. right, in the data. But yeah, like the world is a big, weird place and uh, the, the internet is arguably bigger and weirder. So yeah, lots of edge cases, totally. Okay. So right. the, the report itself is absolutely chock full of numbers and quantitative analysis as we as we discussed but i gotta read some representative uh quotes i'm gonna read two in particular just to give a taste since you can't do it i will (laughs) um so one comes from evangelical protestant sermon our original sin then according to critical race theory is whiteness salvation from that fall begins when the oppressors become woke You heard that term, woke, recently. This is what's going on in the NFL, and that's why I won't be watching it. When they see and repent from their own sins as oppressors and begin to dismantle the inherently oppressive structures of their culture, they're woke. In other words, and he goes on and on, and just uh, he talks about, um, ultimately, he talks about CRT, critical race theory. CRT is rooted in a blend of two worldviews, Marxism, the oppressed and the oppressor, and secular humanism, the belief that humanity is capable of self-fulfillment and rescue, and he goes on and on. I, so I do have to say um, that- uh, Disclaimer. Yeah, I, I've, I've been blessed because I've had pastors who have, have spoken with more wisdom and more nuance than that, but I've also been parts of Bible studies and my kids went to a school where this was, this was, you know, any day that ended with why you would hear something like this, where they clearly never actually read a critical race theory uh, paper from someone who actually studied it, but they learned everything they needed to know from Tucker Carlson, for example. Um, but I also have to, I do want to draw a distinction here. I want to re- read. No, I want to, I want to interject. Uh, just so the listeners know, that is a, a sermon that we identified as talking about race and racism in America, right? right. So. Right. That was that was selected as being at least to a certain degree informative. But yeah, carry on. Yeah. My commentary is more about Christianity as a whole, as someone who's a Christian, um, as well as, you know, this is an illustration of uh, one of the sermons. But of course, you know, the, the study went across, as I said before, thousands and thousands of sermons. But I did want to use it as a good illustration. Um, the on. other one I want to read a little bit from is the mainline Protestant sermon. Uh, we, we already talked about uh, some of the distinctions between historically black Protestant, evangelical, Catholic, mainline Protestant. Uh, so the, this quote is from mainline Protestant, but we have to understand that we are called. There is work to be done. We are called to begin that healing. We're called to begin that healing. Uh, that way that we overcome systemic racism, the way we overcome systemic poverty, we overcome Bible abuse against homosexuals and queer people, the way we overcome transphobia and sexism, the way we overcome people who don't have a living wage because of the color of their skin. And this, um, it, so you know, you can get just from the first couple sentences that is a very different that strikes a very different chord than the one from uh, the the first quote that I read. You could say that. Yeah, yeah. And they're both they're both mentioned because they mention race. Is that correct, Dennis? Yeah. Those are both, those are both sermons that discussed to at least some degree racism, structural racism, or racial inequity in America, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and one conclusion, I, I I took time to read some of that 
is that folks who aren't Christians often make the mistake of thinking that everyone who is a Christian or every Christian church uh, is essentially the same. Once you see Jerry Falwell Jr. or Paula White and you know all their glory, you, you know all you need to know about all Christians. And these quotes make it clear that couldn't be further from the truth. But I, I appreciate how in-depth the uh, survey was. And by providing some illustrations uh, that it, it does color in some of the blanks for us. And I think I got an answer to this earlier, but I was thinking in preparation for this um, just about how much, you know, in the context of our country, there's obviously a lot of political division, but there continues to be even more division in the church. And I wonder if you feel that 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 thesis is backed up in the data from from this in terms of I think you alluded to it a little bit when you said you could be in two different churches hearing a, a pastor address the election and not have any of the same concepts introduced. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I think that is a very clear takeaway from, from the research, right? Is that Americans in maybe even similar looking buildings, right? Sitting in pews, maybe built by the same people are hearing sermons about the same topic and maybe wouldn't recognize what the others are hearing, right? I think that that's very, very clear from the data. Yeah, I have thoughts on that. Definitely some thoughts on that. I don't know that that's good for, for Christendom or for the world, but um, another uh, observation that I found in Appendix A is that congregations that share sermons online are disproportionately evangelical and have larger audiences. Correct. Uh, that was interesting because, you know, we talk about there's obviously the, the the greatest commandment is to make disciples. And and to what extent is the Internet being used in that? It certainly seems that some churches are using the Internet more as the vehicle for that than others. Others may be using uh, a service or a direct physical outreach. What, if anything, do you notice uh, about about that and just about the nature of the technology that churches are using, because because in cleaning up the data, you actually did have have to figure out. Well, some churches are using YouTube and they're using embedded links, and others are putting it in the. Are we technologically savvy in the church community? Oh sure. And what does that tell us about, if anything, about uh, how we're reaching people and how effective we are at doing that? Well, look, I mean, pastors have to make a decision, obviously, about who and who they want to reach and why and how, but there are some incredibly technologically savvy churches out there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, you uh, would look at some of these sermons or services and the production value is like incredibly high. I mean, substantially better than a lot of online content you might see from entirely secular sort of digital first mm -hmm. organizations. So, so yeah, absolutely. There are some very, very, very technologically advanced congregations. And in the data, of course, itself, we are looking at congregations that have chosen to share their sermons online, right? So these are congregations with at least some digital presence. Now, certainly for some, sharing it online is an afterthought, right? Maybe somebody who has some obvious limitation that just prevents them from going to church physically, uh, would be able to listen in later. And for others, it was, you know, clearly something more central, right? I mean, there was clearly a lot of effort put in, in some cases, to make these things, you know, digitally attractive and digestible. So, you know, it plays a really different role 
absolutely in different congregations, but there are some congregations out there that are really, really impressive in their digital outreach. Absolutely. Did you notice if, um, did you take note? Yeah. Th this was your, I, I, th this was actually something, Jess, you, you were asking offline about, are there any um, geographic trends, like where churches are located by category? Uh, Jess, you, you noted that mainline Protestants historically are associated with the Northeast, for example, or evangelicals in the South and Southwest. Did you find that that was supported or is it more geographically complex or diverse than that? Well, so we didn't really break geography into the study that much. We, we mostly focused on what you know, different American Christian groups were hearing. Yes. So the, the basic answer is that it's, it's hard for us to say. Now, a fair number of the congregations in the study were in areas we would classify uh, as being urban, okay. right? And that probably has plenty of relation to internet access and the you know, resources and, and, and interest in being heavily online and all sorts of things like that, right? These are all wrapped together, certainly. Yeah. But as far as geographic breaks in the main findings of the study, yeah, those we don't have. Okay. I also wanted to point out that you noted that evangelical Protestant sermons got longer and black Protestant sermons got shorter than your 2019 survey. Do you have any observations around that? Well, so the distinction I want to be clear on here is that the sermons, services, or homilies, the videos or audio content that they shared online got longer or shorter. That tells us maybe how long the service was, uh, especially if it's an online service, it does. Yeah. But it might also tell us who's cutting the video, right? So <laughs> to a certain degree, we don't want to conceptualize that yeah. as an assertion about whether services cut longer or shorter. What it does tell us, right, is what are the data, right? At any given moment, you as a quantitative researcher, you want to have a base understanding about what the heck you're looking at, right? So for us, the fact that, for example, uh, Catholic uh, services or homilies that were shared online actually doubled in length, roughly, between our first and second studies, between our 2019 and 2020 uh, studies. And that probably doesn't tell us that Catholic services got longer. It probably tells us that the portion or type of service that's being shared online changed in some substantial way, maybe even due to the pandemic, right? When some yeah. services moved okay. on, right. Right? right? So I think that tells us not that the services changed, but I think that it tells us that what's contained in the data probably changed. Now, I've noticed that in a lot of your papers, politics and religion, uh, which you know, sounds, sounds familiar. Maybe we should include that in our title. No, <laughs> the subjects of politics and religion uh, seem to come up again and again. Is that something that you're like, what's next for you? Are you going to pursue something along those lines? You just need a break from this heavy stuff. Uh, I think it is uncontroversial to say that the Pew Research Center will have more for you on religion and that it okay. will have more for you on politics. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, so stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. No, I mean, there's some great papers here. Jess, I don't know how, if you've had a chance to dive into uh, some of the other papers that Dennis has been involved with, but there's some really uh, interesting findings here. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the one from January of 2020, our U.S. churchgoers yeah. are satisfied with sermons. Um, there was one about um, earlier in 2020, U.S. sermons mentioned, a few U.S. sermons mentioned abortion. 
um, just some really interesting findings all throughout. So I encourage everybody to go to pewresearch.org, check out Dennis, some of Dennis's other papers, but also there, there's such a treasure trove of other information there. Um, and we certainly dug in quite a bit about this, uh, this report, but what did we forget to ask you? I feel like we covered a lot of ground, but I'm sure we're missing uh, some, some low hanging fruit here. I'm just looking through the findings. I mean, one thing that we found in our 2019 analysis of how often pastors discussed abortion in US sermons is that when they did so, they tended to bring it up once in a service, oh. right? So this means that there were generally not a lot of sermons that were entirely about abortion, right? Or really even where that was a recurring intellectual thread. It tended to be something that would jump in and then jump back out, right? And that was on top of the fact that discussion of abortion wasn't really even that common. With these topics, we actually did not find that. Of all the sermons that discussed, for example, racism in America, 35% mentioned it twice or more in the sermon, right? Yeah. And the same is true of other groups. So when pastors talked about the election, 46 of them talked about it at least twice, and about half of all uh, sermons discussing the COVID-19 pandemic brought it up once again, twice or more. So that tells us that these topics Unlike, of course, that one topic at that one point in time, I don't want to harp too much on it because once again, it's a number at a point in time, but unlike discussion of abortion in 2019, these were topics that were to at least a certain degree recurring backbones of the conversation, right? They were coming up more than once. So that is something that I think tells us at least a little about how Americans were hearing about these topics, right? Mm -hmm. They were hearing in more depth and they were probably hearing, you know, to a certain degree, you can see in these findings that they were also hearing about more nuanced information within the topics, right? Just like we showed you, yeah. you know, pastors were talking about not just the election, but about turnout and voting, right? Mm -hmm. About specific issues and candidates. And we talked about the election. They often talked about it twice. So that tells us that this was coming up as sort of, once again, a backbone. And that's kind of interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like in my personal experience, that would have, that would have been very much the case as well. I just can't, I can't really think of the animating reason for asking the question in 2019 about abortion and sermons. It wasn't like we had, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think what the Supreme Court, you know, we, we wouldn't have a big Supreme Court case. We might've had confirmations, Yeah. Um, but that really happened in 2020, right before Trump left. So I, yeah, I'm, was there... I mean, do you know enough about the 2019 study to understand why that question was asked? Because if there was an intersection with church. Yeah, no, I led the 2019 study. It's uh, whatever. Yeah. Why did you choose that, that mention of abortion in 2019? So we chose the topic uh, because, you know, when you're deciding what you want to look at in the data, right, you have to engage in this messy and challenging process of whittling down all the things you could possibly do into one thing that you think is really interesting. It doesn't mean that it's the most interesting thing in the entire world. It doesn't mean that now is the time for it. It just means you had to choose something, right? So to a certain degree, right, we wanted to understand how hard it would be to derive topics out of these sermons. And, you know, abortion obviously is an issue where many Americans' views are religiously animated. So yeah. 
figuring out what Americans were hearing from the pulpit seemed like the right thing to do at the time. You know, it's not because we thought 2019 was the moment. It's, uh, it's just because we had the data and we thought we could answer the question. Okay. Because I think the, 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 the moment met the data more clearly in 2020, where you had a, sure. you had a public conversation going on about the election and about um, racism in a way that I, I wouldn't argue that, that you, would, you had in 2019 about abortion. Doesn't mean it's not an important issue, but it wasn't, it wasn't part of a national dialogue. No, probably not. Now, now, I will say, right, there's some value to knowing about that topic when it's not the thing of the moment. Right. So we might want to know what Americans are hearing about a topic when, yeah, there's not a major Supreme Court case about it. Right. Just during your average year. And to that degree, it would be equally valuable to know what Americans are hearing about politics during an off year. Yeah. Right. So are you going to do this again for the midterms? Are you going to do it during the midterms? Are you going to wait till the next presidential cycle? Plead the fifth. (laughs) <laughs> wow that's a major you can't teaser even right get there. a headline oh man nice wow all right wow. so since you pled right. the fifth on that uh now is your chance do you have any questions for us Ooh, interesting uh favorite guest like most interesting you no no <laughs> disqualified i'll let you answer first jess Oh, thanks. Throw me under the bus. Um, if we don't say Ronnie, he's going to be very heartbroken. Wow. Yeah. Ronnie Nathan, <laughs> man. Uh, gosh, we have really, we've had race in, I mean, and I haven't even done all the interviews. I'm helping um, edit some, some stuff this week for the, the release, the re-release. I mean, we've had some good guests. I mean, Scaramucci was great. Uh, I really liked Ryan Burge, who does a lot of research on religion. Are you familiar with who he is, Dennis? Um, um, I would- he authored the book, The Nuns. Specifically oh, yeah, sure. about, you know, uh, this this incredibly large and growing part of our population that does not identify with a religion. Um, we've had some good political interviews. But I know Corey's going to say the best interview was me. <laughs> Jessica Stone. Was that's right. Guest. Absolutely. That's how I found Corey. I was one of his guests. So you never know, Dennis, we could be calling you up one day to say, can you co-host? Yeah, co-host our panel. Um, there have been some really cool ones. We've had, you know, just a, an endless list. Well, we're 50 something episodes in, I think now. So, yeah, you know, I was really grateful to Julie Mason. Um, she was the first, what you would consider high profile guest that we had. And she's fantastic. She's so witty, uh, and, and snarky in all the right best ways. Um, but also at the same time, I really appreciate her genuine love for good journalism and her her advocacy for good journalists. So I appreciated that. But then, you know, some of the folks who spoke more on religious topics, uh, a dear, dear friend of mine, uh, Tommy Givens, so wonderful. We had a a very uh, challenging talk. He and Amy Laura Hall, uh, Amy Laura from uh, Duke, uh, about when our heroes fall, when our theological or religious heroes fall. Another one of my favorite ones along the same lines, another colleague of theirs, uh, Samir Yadav, he's so erudite and so thoughtful. Um, but we had a, an extensive conversation about the religious roots of racism. So that was a really interesting one. And then just recently, we talked about uh, the, pre- the prevalence and reemergence of anti-Semitism with uh, my 20-year-old niece, who's experiencing uh, some incidents up in San Francisco currently. So yeah, it's been Gosh, so I guess that's not just one. We've had quite a few. Um, 
but yeah, it's just great having meaningful conversations on important topics with folks from all different walks of life. Uh, that, that's been a really cool part of, of, of doing this. I appreciate you asking that. Good list. Was that your only question? <laughs> um, least interesting guest. Just kidding. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, I could answer that, but I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, no, I would suggest you not. It's your PRF here. <laughs> Everybody has been amazing. Amazing. Um, so how can we find you more of your work and how can we find more about Pew Research? Well, you can go to our website, pewresearch.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Pew Research. Our topical handles are things like Pew Religion, Pew Politics. It's not that hard to figure out. You can find us on Instagram. That's, that's, I would say that's the good way to do it. Yeah, terrific. Do you have any memes? Do you do any social media memes? Is there like a social, uh, quantitative social scientist meme that you can put up? Well, what is a, what is a graph? <laughs> if, not a, if not a data meme. Is this an existential question? <laughs> what is a graph? I might be, uh, I might be out of my lane here. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to get into the, the ontology of graphs. <laughs> no, if you go to Dennis's Twitter, it's at Dennis R. Quinn. Uh, there are definitely some, I, I, they wouldn't qualify as memes. I love the, the I just, I love the graphs, man. I, I can go gra all graph all day. <laughs> yeah, Verge does the graph. Yeah, we, we have fallen victim to some geeking out about some, some graphic, graphically geeky moments for sure. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> Actually, no, before we go. He's funny. I, I, we didn't know it was going to be this funny. <laughs> they, uh, um, they drill it into you. <laughs> I, I should have pointed this out earlier. The team, when I was reading the people on your team, it's it's amazing how many people it takes to really produce yeah, quality information from yeah. a like good 15, 20 people. graphics people oh, to across uh, the years, dozens. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's really remarkable. So we appreciate the work of the entire team. Um, and we appreciate you taking the time to spend with us and have some fun and geek out and, you know, obviously learn. No, look, to, in, in all seriousness to the question, right? Like the, the difference between a high quality report and a bad college paper is often the graphics and formatting people, right? I mean, our, our graphics and information design people are just brilliant. Yeah, like, yeah data artists. So yeah, when you read a Pew report, definitely thank your local graphic designer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, give our thanks to them because it, it, it certainly helps. A whole team of people, experts, just really appreciated it. Okay. So before we get ourselves into more trouble or get Dennis fired, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to call this a wrap. So as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments. It. Smash, smash it. it, smash that What with the, the thing. What is it? The button. Uh, smash the button, smash the like would, button. I would demonstrate what that looks like, but this computer is pretty expensive. And hit the <laughs> subscribe button. We would love to hear from you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you all again, and we'll see you real soon. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>